If you would, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 113, our, our passage for this morning. And if you're able, let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Would you give us joy and delight in your word that we might meditate on it day and night and be like trees firmly planted by streams of living water, bearing its fruit in season, all for the glory of Jesus, our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In uh, 2011, uh, Walter Isaacson, who was then the, the CEO of, of CNN, wrote a biography of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. Uh, that also happened to be the year that he died after a long battle with cancer. I'm a big Apple fan. Uh, we grew up with Apple computers in our house, and and so I'm very interested in it, bought the book, and, and uh, read it quite, quick, quite quickly. Uh, and it became clear in this book that the biography was in part a play in contrast. On the one hand, uh, if you're at all familiar with the Apple company and Steve Jobs, he, he was a great innovator, a great designer, a great leader in industry. At the time of his death, Apple had just become the uh, most valued company in the world, quite large, quite wealthy. Uh, his ideas, his products have changed the world. Uh, you can debate whether that's good or bad, but they've changed the world whether you like it or not. Uh, his greatness in these areas, in other words, is, is undeniable. On the other hand, he was deeply flawed. Uh, he had a difficult, abrasive personality. He was more than prickly. He often drove people away or simply infuriated them. He was unrelenting in his commitment to his own ideas, to his own passions, uh, to his own vision of what ought to be done, kind of had a uh, get on the bus or find yourself under the bus mentality. And people like this, who are great in some areas and not so much in, the, in others, from a distance you might look at them and say, wow. He's, he's great. That's amazing. What an amazing person. But up close, not so much. One of the striking things about this book that stuck with me over the last 10 years was the, the words of one of his daughters. Uh, as, as, the, as Walter Isaacson was finishing the book, he was uh, one of Job's daughters, asked if she could interview with him uh, about her dad. You know, she lived with this tension of her father being the CEO of, of the most valuable company in the world, very famous, very well-known, 
uh, for many decades, but also her dad and trying to have a relationship with him, one which was fraught with difficulty. And as she reflected on her relationship with her dad, uh, she said something that to me was very sad. Uh, She said, "I, I wish I had more time to spend with him. He didn't spend much time with her. Uh, But I recognize that what he's doing is really important for the world. I thought, that's a sad sad thing. He's great, but he doesn't have time for his own daughter. His wife summed it up like this. Like many men whose gifts are extraordinary, he's not extraordinary in every realm. He doesn't have social graces such as putting himself in other people's shoes. But he cares deeply about empowering humanity the advancement of humankind and putting the right tools in their hands, which is a kind way of saying he cares about the world, but he doesn't really like people. (laughs) He was great, but not so great. And so it is with men. We often think that the greater a person is, whether it's greatness in wealth or power and influence, the less connected they often are to those around them, the less compassion, the less empathy they may have. Yet as we come to this psalm, it's another contrast. We're told that it's not so with the Lord. It's a call to praise Him, both for His incomparable greatness and glory and for His humble regard for the lowly. Compassion, empathy, if you will. A love not just for humanity, but for people in the depths of lowliness and despair. The Lord is infinitely exalted, yet also near the lowly and the dejected. Or to put it another way, this psalm highlights for us a unique aspect of the Lord's praiseworthy glory. Namely, that though he is highly exalted, he stoops down to lift us up by his grace. And so we see two main ideas from this psalm. One, that the Lord is worthy of praise. And two, that the Lord is absolutely unique in his glory. He is worthy of praise and absolutely unique in his glory. The Lord is worthy of praise. Uh, Notice the emphasis on this in the beginning verses with this repeated command, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. And at the end of the psalm, again repeating, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He is worthy of praise. And in particular, in the first two verses, first three verses rather, it's the name of the Lord that is to be praised. Three times, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. We are to praise the Lord for his gracious and glorious name. His name is his character. It's, it's who he is. It's the revelation of himself to us. And there, there are two important places in Scripture that help us understand what this means, the name of the Lord, who He is, what He's like. Uh, the first is Exodus 34. You don't need to turn there, but you, you remember the story. God's people have come out of Egypt from Pharaoh being slaves um, and making bricks without the right tools and materials and, and under great oppression. And the Lord has heard their cry. He sent them Moses brought the plagues, the final one, killing the firstborn son, except for the Passover lamb's blood being spread over the doorposts of his people. He brings them out with great power and glory, this wonderful redemption. And as they're wandering, as they're on their way uh, out of Egypt and toward the promised land, Moses is called up to a mountain. 
and is there communing with the Lord for an extended period of time. The people are down at the bottom of the mountain. They're a little bit fearful of, of God. The mountain was covered with smoke and lightning and, and all this kind of stuff. They were fearful. Moses is up there. He's been up there for a little while, and, and the people begin to wonder, what's going on? You know, Moses is gone. He let us out. What, what are we going to do? So they call on Moses' brother Aaron, help us out. And Aaron has this bright idea, give me your gold. Give me your gold. We'll, we'll melt it down. We'll make a golden calf, and we'll worship this God as the one who brought us out of Egypt. They worship the calf. Moses comes down, sees what's going on. There's judgment. Moses pleads with the Lord for forgiveness, goes back up on the mountain, and pleads with the Lord not to leave them as they go on their way, but to lead them into the land. Don't, don't leave us on our own. You have to lead us where you will take us. And the Lord agrees to this, and then Moses says, show me your glory. And as the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, passes by him, reveals the backside of his glory, the Lord proclaims his name, which in part is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, full and overflowing, abounding in loving kindness and truth. The Lord is compassionate. The name of the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of truth and grace. By the time you get into the New Testament, John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God who is God himself, that Jesus is the Word made flesh, and he is the one who reveals to us the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In other words, right out of the gate, this psalm calling us to praise the name of the Lord is focusing in for us that our praise should be directed to the Lord who deals compassionately with sinners, who deals graciously even with those who have rebelled against him. This is his name. It's who he is. It's who he is towards his people, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in truth and grace, loving kindness, covenant love. What a wonderful name he has. And this praise of the Lord is to go for all time and in every place. From this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from the east to the west, in other words, there is no end ever to the praise of the Lord. Heaven is now full of his praise. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with unceasing praise around the glorious throne of God and of the Lamb. The reason we should praise the Lord forever and in every place is because his glory is above all. Notice verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. He's, he's so great, he's higher than the highest heavens, and his glory is far greater still. Uh, last year sometime, uh, we, we bought a calendar, or one of us bought a calendar in our home that, that has uh, pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, these amazing images from space that you or I would never be able to see with our naked eye, and probably none of us are going to pay to go on a space rocket and, and check it out for ourselves, but we got these images, and they're amazing, of galaxies and, and systems far off, uh, measured in distances that I don't even know how to 
comprehend beautiful displays of glory in the heavens, all made possible by modern technology through the Hubble Space Telescope. We have the benefit of this better glimpse of the heavens more so than the the psalmist did to help us understand how great God's glory is. In 1990, when NASA launched the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, the goal of the project was to kind of take this massive telescopic camera up into space so it could take pictures of these distant galaxies and, and uh, you know, fixtures up in the heavens, formations, and then send them back so that we could look at them and people who are smarter than I am could examine them and tell us all about it for the most part. They'd be able to see more closely things that they had not been able to see before. And, and this project had been in the works for quite a while. And one of the components of the project was this massive disk of a mirror that was to go in, in this huge camera that they were going to shoot up into space. And the, the polishing of the mirror had to be absolutely precise, zero room for error at all. Once everything was installed, they launched the telescope. It goes up into the uh, orbit, and then they wait. It's taking these pictures, and the images begin to come in. I can picture everyone at, at NASA gathered around these old screens, computer screens from the 1990s, and it's like coming in line by line. Y'all remember that? The way things were slow. It's coming from a satellite up in space, and they're all gathered around it waiting to see these images that they have labored so hard to secure so that they can see what's going on and examine it. And as it comes in line by line, the, the full screen is resolved. It's fuzzy. It's, it's out of focus. It's, it's unclear. Something went wrong. They figured out that the mirror that had been polished down with ultra precision was off by one-fiftieth the uh, thickness of a human hair, which is not a lot. I don't even know what kind of micro-nanometer that is. Not much, but it was enough that it was out of focus. So you know what they did? They sent some space optometrists up into uh, space to fix the telescope. They put some corrective lenses inside of the Hubble uh, Space Telescope, and it was able to correct you know, this mirror, this minor discrepancy in the mirror. And as these images, now corrected, now clear, began to come in, see all these kind of nerdy scientists gathered around this screen, and they're seeing these images clearly now for the first time, and they're weeping. <laughs> It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. They put so much work into seeing these images that they they are overwhelmed with emotion at the beauty of it. God's glory is far greater still. And we behold it by faith as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, a glory far greater than any nebula or solar system or galaxy that we could see through the Hubble Space Telescope. The glory of the Lord is high above the highest heavens in all of its glory. It's far greater, and he is to be praised. God is great. He's majestic. He's he's full of glory beyond all other glories. And yet, we recognize, don't we, that, that pure greatness without relationship, may move us to awe and wonder, perhaps even fear, but it may not move us to love. But the glory of the Lord is unique. 
He's not only great and glorious, but he is, as Calvin says, full of unbounded goodness and grace. The Lord is not a powerful, glorious tyrant disconnected from those who are beneath him, nor is he a powerless sympathizer, able to understand us, but unable to help us in our moment of need. Rather, he is great in both glory and grace, and the greatness of his glory is magnified by the greatness of his grace. We see this in verse 5 and following, the uniqueness of the glory of the Lord. Notice the question. It's a rhetorical question. It begins in verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God? Answer, no one. He's absolutely unique. There is none like him. Absolutely unique in his glory and in his grace. In other words, if, if I were to give you an assignment and, uh, and you didn't have any knowledge of the Bible, if you can uh, remove the curse of knowledge for just a minute and pretend you don't know those things, if I were to give you an assignment and say, okay, tell me about a God, make up a God, uh, come up with your own God, what he's like, what he does, etc. The Bible is telling us you wouldn't come up with this God. He'd be perhaps so distant that you couldn't know him. He's super powerful. He can do whatever he wants, but I don't really know what he wants. He, he acts according to his nature, but I don't really know what he's like, if he's good, if he's kind, or maybe he's cruel and evil. I don't, I don't know. He's so distant that we can't know him, or, or maybe you end up with a God that's so much like you that it doesn't really matter if you know him. There's no benefit to knowing him. Just be like knowing one of us. But the glory of the Lord is in this. The Lord says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. The Lord, glorious and exalted, is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Part of the uniqueness of the great glory of the Lord is that he stoops down. He, he humbles himself. You ever think about God being humble? It kind of doesn't make any sense to us. That's what the psalm is telling us. He humbles himself. He comes down. He, he condescends to us without being condescending. He looks, he looks down on us without looking down on us. He lowers himself without making us feel like we're beneath him in the worst of ways, and yet all the while maintaining his great glory and uniqueness. Notice the contrast in verse 5 and 6. Who's like the Lord our God? He's enthroned on high. He's, he's exalted to sit upon his throne. He's that high up. Verse 6, he humbles himself to behold, to see the things in heaven and in the earth. He identifies with the poor, the needy, the dejected. Entering into their situation in order to lift them up by grace. Spurgeon says this about the psalm, how great a stoop from the height of his throne to the dunghill, which is what the ash heap is referring to. How wonderful the power that occupies itself in lifting up beggars, all befouled with the filthiness in which they lay. You see, this is grace. This is the movement from the heights of heaven to the lowest of the lows on earth. This is God's pattern of redemption for his people. It's what makes the Christian faith totally unique among all other world religions. 
All the others are, are grasping for truth that's been revealed in Scripture, and they're grasping somewhat in darkness, and so they get some things right and miss other things. Everything else kind of goes in the opposite direction of this. All other religions will tell you, I don't think this is a caricature at all, they'll tell you that you've got to perform to get yourself up to God, that the way is not from God down to us, but from us up to him. He doesn't come down to us. You have to work your way up to him. But the psalm tells us that the uniqueness of God's glory is that he is so great, he crosses an infinite distance to come into our existence and to lift us up from the filth of the dirt and the dunghill to make us royalty, royal children in his household. There's three ways that we see this in the person of Jesus, in his incarnation, in his imputation, and in his intercession. First, in his incarnation, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, existing in perfect loving fellowship with the Father from all eternity in the thrones of heaven and all his glory, comes down to us. Paul says in Philippians that uh, though he regarded equality with God a thing not to be held on to tightly, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he lowered himself and became one of us, became a servant, and became obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took on our flesh. He became one of us. There's, there's no lower place that he could go. He entered into our, our very existence, into our world, taking our flesh upon himself, becoming a servant and obedient to death. Incarnation, imputation, our sin is put on him. He took our sin upon himself. Paul says in Romans 8 that Jesus became a man and became like, like us in bearing sinful flesh so that when he was condemned, our sin was condemned in him. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin is placed on him. He enters into our sin without himself ever sinning. That's how low he descends for us. And then finally, intercession. We're, we're not to think that Jesus somehow now exalted in heaven forgets about us or doesn't remember what it's like to suffer and to endure trial and temptation. The, the book of Hebrews says that he's a, he's a faithful high priest, that he's able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, so that he is able to help those in need with mercy and with grace. Jesus has not somehow forgotten what it's like to be you in heaven. And so in a sense, there's still this condescension even though he is exalted at the right hand of the Father because the book of Hebrews tells us that he ever lives to intercede for us and he does so from a sympathetic heart. He prays for you. He prays for us. He understands your weaknesses. And part of what that means is he's accessible. You can, you can come to him. 
He's not so far off that you can't know him. He's not so close to us that he's, he's just like us in every way. He's the glorious God who has come down low for us to raise us up, and his heart is open toward all those who would come to him to lift up the needy, to identify with the broken, to give life and joy to the downtrodden and the lowly, as the psalm indicates, bringing life into the home of the woman who's unable to have children, but rather he blesses with life and joy in the home. He brings life and joy to the downtrodden and the lowly. How do you measure the love of God? Well, in part, this psalm is telling us that you measure the love of God by the distance that he has come to rescue us. No greater distance could be made than what Jesus has done, entering into our flesh, taking our sin upon himself, dying on the cross that he might redeem us, that he might lift us up out of our sin and make us beloved children of the King of heaven. This is the measure of God's love. How should we respond to this? What, what implications does this have for us as we think about this great and glorious God who has humbled himself to lift us up? Well, let me go in two directions here. Uh, first, for, for those who are not Christians, for those who have not embraced Jesus as your own Savior, I think the message of Psalm 113 is that Christ is accessible to all who will come to him. He's great. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He is able to save. He's able to forgive. He's able to rescue. And he's good. It is his desire for all those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and to find rest because his heart is gentle and lowly. He humbled himself for you so that whatever your trouble, whatever your guilt, whatever your sorrow, whatever your sin, Jesus says, come to me. I'm accessible. My heart is open toward you if you will come. He came for you. Go to him. For those who are followers of Jesus, if you're a Christian, let me just give you two, two points of application as we close. First, uh, very simply, do what the psalm says. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Bless the name of the Lord. Know, know God well enough that you can praise him for who he is, for his grace, his compassion, his faithfulness, for all of his many attributes. Know him, love him. Let your life be a token of praise and gratitude to this great God who has loved us so well. Do what the psalm tells you to do. Praise, praise the Lord. Praise God. Secondly, I think this psalm presses upon us that we need to foster an attitude of humility that matches not only our condition, but matches the humility of Jesus himself. When we're honest with ourselves and reading this psalm in that way, we recognize that we are the poor who are in the dust. We're the needy on the dunghill, the ash heap. We're the ones who need life and joy in our home, and we can't do it ourselves, but Jesus has humbled himself to lift us up and to bring us into loving fellowship with the Father through his own humility. Humility ought to be uh, the tone that characterizes the people of God. This is quite countercultural. Uh, our culture says that the major problem at work in the world today, why, why people have all the problems that they do, whatever they may be, the major problem is that people lack self-esteem. They have, they have too low a view of themselves, and, and the solution is just to 
puff everybody up. Let everybody know how, how much better they, they really are and, and, and encourage that kind of um, self-esteem. Uh, unfortunately, scientific evidence doesn't, doesn't bear that out. The solution to our problem is not for us to think more highly of ourselves. That's a crushing solution because there's always somebody else who's better. There's always somebody when you start comparing yourself to them, you start looking at yourself a little bit differently and you compare your worst self to their best self and social media drives the anxiety and the despair of that in ways that are um, perhaps not even seen in their fullest extent yet. Uh, May God have mercy on us for it. Your solution, the solution for your problems is not to have better self-esteem solution to your problems is to have an honest view of yourselves and a great view of Jesus, to, to see yourself the way God does, as one who is deeply broken by sin and yet deeply loved in the gospel, to see that your value, your worth comes not from your performance and your merit and your ability to keep up with the neighbors and to, to present yourself faultless. Your value, your worth, your identity comes in knowing Christ who loved you, who gave himself up for you when you were enemies, when you were hostile, when you were sinking deep in sin and the Savior came in. That ought to humble us and it ought to drive us to Jesus to find that the one who knows us most deeply, no, no mask, no, no, no charades, no, no faking it with the living God, He knows you all the way to the core, and he loves you because he's chosen to do so by his grace, and it's in spite of our sin and our unworthiness. He makes us worthy with his own love. Ask yourself this. If somebody were to describe your top five characteristics or maybe your top two, would humility be one of them? Do you talk more of yourself than of the Lord? You think about yourself most often, more often than perhaps about the Lord or about others. Humility is not simply thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less and finding your joy and your value in who the living God says that you are, not simply in your own evaluation of yourself. Uh, May the Lord make us humble as Jesus himself was humble coming into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, humbling himself all the way to death on a cross, and the Lord exalting him in his glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory. May the Lord make us humble in the same way. I've got a friend who uh, works up at at Ridge Haven and, and was present at the board meeting a couple weeks ago, and uh, every, he's he's a um, a, a retired pastor and just a loving, uh, a gentle man and super humble. Everybody who knows him would say he's humble. Probably some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's interested in others. He, you walk away from a conversation with him and you feel like you haven't really learned a whole lot about him, but he's learned a whole lot about you because he's just asking questions. He's interested. He's encouraging. He's praying for you. Uh, he, he is a loving and faithful pastor. And every time we gather at the board meetings, uh, we often will share prayer requests with one another. 
And every year when it comes around to this particular individual, um, every time we meet, rather, say, what can, how can we pray for you? You know what he says? Pray that I'd be more humble. That's humility when you really don't think you're humble, but everybody else thinks that you are. When you've got a sober view of yourself in light of God's holiness and in light of God's grace, and you've embraced the love of God that has been displayed by the uniquely glorious God, highly exalted and yet who humbled himself to know us, to lift us up from the dirt and from the dunghill, that we might become princes, not just servants in the house, but noble uh, sons and daughters of the living God. May we be humble and reflect the humility of Jesus, our Savior, in this way. Would you pray?